0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley, or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I'm now really sad my name isn't Gary Miracle, but I'm still glad to be with you uh, here this morning. So, When we approach LGBT questions, it's helpful to acknowledge at the front end that a lot of us, our first feeling is fear. Uh, Some of us might be feeling fear because we experience same-sex attraction and maybe we've been hurt in church spaces and so we're not sure what's gonna be said. Or we might be feeling fear because we have friends and family who identify as gay or lesbian and we care about them and we don't know what's gonna be said. Maybe we feel fear because we're watching what's happening in the culture around us and things seem to be changing so fast and it's destabilizing and so we feel some fear. And I just wanna acknowledge that at the front end that that, that's normal and and I hope that we can move from a place of fear towards faith and confidence. And part of how I wanna help us get there, I hope, is uh, sharing my story with you this morning at the front end of our time because for me, like for probably all of you or most of you, these questions aren't just out there in the world, they're, they're deeply personal. And so I grew up in Southern California, you might be picturing like very, very populated, but I grew up in a very rural spot in Southern California. Like my high school had a place where you could tie up a horse if you rode that to school. And so uh, my family never, ever, ever went to church. That just wasn't part of our heritage at all. But I grew up around people who went to church. So by the time I got to high school, I was really curious, like, what is true in the world? What what explains all of this? But when I talked to my friends who were churchgoers, I didn't really feel like the answers that they gave me made good sense. And, And over time, I even congealed to a place where I'm like, well, Christians are people who just don't know how to think or don't care to think. This is just for people who, frankly, are stupid. The other thing that happened in high school, uh, and I was in high school from, you know, in, in the Bush era, let's put it that way, uh, I realized that my romantic home felt much more at ease with other young women as opposed to young men. I'd had some boyfriends in high school, but those experiences also felt... Mm, awkward, sort of not fitting, and you might be thinking, well, you were hooking up with teenage boys, and you're not wrong. But as I started to have romantic and sexual experiences with other young women, I thought, no, this this is where my future is. And this was before Massachusetts even became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. You know, this was back when Will and Grace was still edgy, not nostalgic, but, but I kinda knew that the future was with me. And so, by the time I graduated high school, I, I knew, I was like, I'm, my foundation is the fact that I'm intellectually awesome and that I'm gonna marry a woman someday, hopefully the girl that I'm dating at the time. And I just left my little cow town behind. And so I was really excited to get accepted into Yale University, because I think I thought it was perpetually October. I didn't realize it's cold in Connecticut, but I was excited to be there. And God in his kindness during my freshman year just blew me up, so on the one hand, felt a lot of sense of identity in my intellectual respectability, but it turns out if you go to a super lame public high school in California, you will not be impressive once you get to a place like Yale. I was suddenly like, oh no, I'm not even in like the middle of the pack. I'm like way behind, be like, hey, wait up. So that part of my identity sort of crumbled. Uh, And then the other thing that happened uh, during my freshman year was I went through a, a classic rite of passage, which is the teenage breakup, and it was ugly, and it was sad, and I cried a lot. And suddenly I was just in New England, cold for the first time, not feeling smart enough, feeling abandoned, and just kind of like, woe is me, having an identity crisis. And it wasn't like in the middle of this, I was thinking, oh, I need to turn to Jesus, because I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't know really what to do, but God, thankfully, knew what to do with me. So I, I happened to be in a course, we were going through Western philosophy. And so one of the first lectures back that semester, We heard a lecture on René Descartes, the old dead French guy who invented the phrase I think, therefore I am. And the lecturer was explaining how from that phrase, uh, Descartes created this whole proof for the existence of God. And I was sitting in the lecture hall thinking, this is a really stupid proof for the existence of God, which I still think. But while I was sitting there, I thought, what if there are other proofs for God's existence that I don't know about that are more compelling and I was like, no, 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 we don't, we don't think that way. That's for stupid bigots. But I also couldn't quite shake it. So I'm a millennial. So I decided I would ask the internet. Now, again, this was 2004, so you still need a lot of upper body strength to get your laptop open. I would crank that thing open and just fire in religious search terms, you know, like that, that, that. And you follow the hyperlinks forever. And I realized I just kept coming back to reading about the character of Jesus and I had had this cartoon vision of Jesus in my mind. Remember, this is Bush era, so I kinda thought about like George W. Bush wrapped in a toga or something, but not a particularly helpful image for me. But when I was reading about Jesus, I was reading about this person instead who seemed really intelligent but also tender. And I was like, I can't be interested in Jesus as a character, like I wanna marry a woman someday. My sexuality is a barrier, that doesn't work. At the same time, the only two people I knew at Yale who identified as Christians were these two young women who were dating each other. And one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. So I thought, well, they must know something I don't know. So I went to them, very sheepishly, and I was like, I don't really understand. These things, they don't seem to go together. And they were like, oh no, it's all been a big misunderstanding. The Bible actually supports monogamous gay relationships. I was like, really? That's so interesting. And they were like, yeah. So they gave me a packet of information explaining the correct way to interpret things. And I love a packet. So I took that thing back to my room. Just shows you how nerdy I am. And I was ripping through it. And it made a ton of sense. I'm like, gosh, this is really good. At the same time, I was like, maybe I should actually read the Bible verses that they're claiming to talk about. I didn't have a Bible, so I just pulled them off my computer. And eventually I was like, oh. Actually, I don't think these interpretations are very good at all. I think the Bible's actually saying no to gay relationships. And I was like, whatever, I was stupid to even think this was a thing, so I remember just throwing it in the trash. But a little while after that, I happened to be in the room of a friend of mine uh, who was a non-practicing Catholic. I remember standing in her doorway, she was deeper in her room putting stuff in a bag or whatever, and right next to her doorway, she had a bookshelf, and one of my favorite hobbies is to look at people's bookshelves and judge them. So I was checking out what kind of, you do it too, right? So I was checking out what was on there, and I saw she had a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I hadn't been raised on Narnia, so I didn't know to make the yummy noises when I saw it, but I still really wanted to read it because of the title. But I was also embarrassed by my interest and didn't wanna ask my friend who surely would've given it to me, so I just stole the book. I just put it into my bag, because she wasn't looking and it's very small, and I had no moral compass. So soon after that, I happened to be in the library one day reading You know that weird period where you can't do anything. So I was just reading between my classes. And suddenly, while I was reading, I was overwhelmed with the knowledge that not only does a God exist, like a Roman or a Greek God or something, but the God who made me exist, the God who made everything exists. It was like I could sense his perfection. I could certainly sense that I was gonna owe him an account of my life. the thing that I felt was fear. I knew that I was arrogant, that I was a liar, that I cheated on stuff, that I was mean, I was sexually immoral, I was reading a stolen book, like clearly all of the chips were in the guilty category. You know, (laughs) I was like, oh this is bad news. But then I also realized really quickly with that, I think the Spirit made known to me that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me and that the only way to be safe was to run towards him, not away from him. So I sat there thinking, I don't wanna become a Christian, that's really lame. But I also thought, well I can't pretend that this isn't true just because it's inconvenient for my life, like that's pretty stupid. I'm not gonna get a better deal than this, I need to take this deal. So I didn't have like a nice pastor friend with me, but I kinda knew I needed to pray, and so I closed my eyes and I was like, fine, I'll become a Christian. And then I went to class, you know, I didn't didn't know what to do with myself. So the the hilarious thing to me about my assignment this morning is talking about um, LGBT questions and community, specifically disciples who experience same-sex attraction and, and our need for community. And I just told you a story about how, like, I basically became a Christian all by myself, weirdly and secretly. But the truth is, I did pray to receive Christ in that moment by myself, but I never would have made it without God's people, I just wouldn't have. My first couple of years of discipleship were like an a open dumpster fire. You know what I mean, I needed God's people. And, and so at this point, I'd love to begin talking about that idea of community. And I wanna turn to our, our text for the morning, which is in um, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. We're actually picking up in the middle of um, the story of the rich young ruler, which you might be aware of. And this story is primarily about how wealth can keep us from following Jesus accurately. We're not talking about this morning, but as Americans who are addicted to wealth, you really need this passage. So read it another time for that. But we're gonna pick up uh, kind of in the middle after the rich young ruler has left in Mark 10, verse 23. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, good old Peter, we've left everything to follow you. And we have to recognize right off the bat, right, um, Jesus is not talking about LGBT questions in this passage, nor is he talking about our contemporary questions. But there are still some really good principles, especially in what he's doing in verses 29 and 30, that can be helpful as we consider our questions this morning. And one of the most important things we're gonna think about as we think about community is, first, our community has to be founded in Jesus Christ. There's a general flow in verses 29 to 30 of like, saying no to some things and gaining other things, this like giving up and getting. And that can immediately trigger for us this instinct we often have of treating God like a gumball machine or something, right? Like I put in a certain type of obedience and I get out some type of reward. We're constantly trying to put God in our debt. We're constantly trying to say like, well, I won't do this, or that or that and then you have to give me these things or i will do you know i will go to church every week and go to home group and serve in this way and then you owe me something maybe it's a certain job or a spouse or health or whatever because this passage kind of has that movement it can trigger this thing where we we try to put god in our debt and i just want to remind us god owns the blood in your veins you cannot put him into your debt but we do see in this passage, we see right at verse, at verse 30, right, like those who have given up these things for me and for the gospel, I will provide for them. That we serve a God who is kind and who recognizes what we need and that because of who he is and because of what the gospel is, sometimes that's gonna mean leaving things behind. And it has to be founded on Jesus. Like if you just want something where you leave something behind and gain something, you can do CrossFit. Like you, you leave behind joy and you gain fitness or something, right? This is, a, this is a movement about Jesus. And this was something that was so important to me in my first um, years of following the Lord. I mean, it's still important to me now, but especially at the beginning of my discipleship, I wrestled so much with the Lord because I saw that the Bible said no to same-sex lust and gay relationships. But I didn't understand why God said no to it. And this really bothered me. His no felt arbitrary and cruel. And the Lord really pressed on me in this time saying, what if the most important question isn't why am I saying no to this? What if the most important question is can you trust the one who's asking? Because if I was only willing to obey when I understood and agreed, perhaps I wasn't really worshiping God or following God as God, perhaps I was following myself. And I got pressed again and again back to the story of the garden, you know, where God set Adam and Eve in this beautiful place, gave them everything they needed, but he gave them only one prohibition. And you'd think it would be something like don't murder each other. We'd be like, yes, that's a very good rule. But the prohibition was don't eat this fruit on a tree in the middle of the garden. Like even vegans eat fruit, you know what I mean? So like on the face of it, you're like, why is this the thing? It turns out maybe we needed faith even before sin entered the world. And the serpent pressed Eve right on this point. He got her to use her own data, right? She saw that the fruit was attractive to look at, that it was gonna be good to eat, that it was desirous to make her wise. The only thing she had on the other side was God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And I felt like I was in such the same place, like I had all these reasons why I should be able to say yes to my same sex desires. And the only thing I had on the other side was God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And I knew if I was gonna make a different decision than Eve, that I would have to trust the Lord. And so it pressed me again and again into, is Christ good? And not just good in like an out there sense, but good to me. It pressed me into understanding his work and his person and answering like, yes, he has shown in his life and his death the fact that he came at all, that he is for me. And when we come to something like sexual ethics, when we come to the realization that in order to say yes to Christ, we're gonna to have to leave some things behind, that has to be grounded in his goodness. And you can't live off of the fumes of my conviction. That's something, the goodness of Christ has to be something that you make your own by the power of the Spirit and in community. But we do see, like, ultimately I got to a place where I'm like, okay, well, I do trust that you're good. And I do see that, <coughs> that you have said, you know, all of, all of us sexually experience and express our sexuality in ways that are fallen and broken, but by the Spirit, each of us can either enter into biblical marriage, male, female, faithful marriage, by the power of the Spirit, or be faithfully single by the power of the Spirit, no matter what our attractional patterns are. That there are, there are good options for us that the Spirit empowers us to embrace. And so, even though it might mean saying no to some things, there There is a yes, but we see the no pretty strongly uh, in verse 29, so you remember the context of the passage we read is the rich young ruler, and we often think of the rich young ruler being rich in the sense of having lots of money and things, which he probably did. But oddly enough, by the time we get to 29 and 30, Jesus isn't talking mostly about wealth in terms of money and things. He does mention um, homes and fields, But most of the wealth that he's talking about are relationships. Look how many terms we have, mother, father, children, brothers, sisters, the the wealth he's talking about is other people, which I think is a really important corrective saying like our our true wealth really is in our relationships. And one of the things we have to understand as we talk about um, folks who experience same-sex attraction who are called into discipleship, because God's word says no to gay relationships, That means following Christ is saying no to some really deep relationships. I have met men and women who were in gay marriages when the gospel was shared with them and they were called out of those marriages. I have met other people who were in other serious romantic relationships who were called out. I have met gay and lesbian people who received the gospel and then were ultimately rejected by their own former communities, because there was just such, you couldn't understand what it meant to say no to a part of their life that was so previously important. When, when someone who is in the LGBT community hears the gospel, it is a walking away from family, chosen family and otherwise. We have to take that costly obedience really seriously as the church. But it's not even just someone who hears the gospel who happens to already be in the LGBT community. We have youth and folks in our own church who experience same-sex attraction because of the beauty of Christ are saying, I recognize that this is my experience, but I'm gonna say no to these desires because I wanna say yes to Christ. And so it's also saying no to even future romantic relationships or future community. And some of us have never had to give up that kind of anything to follow Christ. We need to recognize how big of a piece this is for same-sex attracted disciples to say, yes, I may still experience this attraction, but I am saying no to these relationships. Now, same-sex attracted people are not the only disciples in the world who have to give up family. That's something that some disciples have had to do throughout the history of the church and even today in the world, but it is a particular part of our experience, and the the words of Christ are so helpful in response, right? He acknowledges, okay, you're gonna have to leave certain relationships, but he has a response, too, in verse 30. And what's really interesting are the things that Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say in verse 30, um, you might have to leave father, mother, children, brothers and sisters, but don't worry, someday you'll go to heaven. In the meantime, it's just you and me. Sometimes we have in Evangelical spaces, this sort of like uh, Jesus isn't, like I only need Jesus. Now if you have the whole world and don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. But it's interesting to notice in this text, we don't see a just have Jesus, like you left your whole family and I'm enough, so don't worry, we'll just wait for heaven kind of idea. I mean frankly we see this even in Genesis two, before sin enters the world, so Adam still has direct relationship to God. God looks at Adam, the only thing that's called not good before sin entered the world. God looks at Adam and said, "Oh, it's not good that the man be alone." Now was Adam alone? He had direct relationship to God. Well, in a way he was because we're actually designed for intimate relationships. We are designed for community. Just as God exists perfectly in community, so we need each other. That's part of the reason why Jesus says if you have to walk away from certain relationships, you'll get others in return because you're designed that way. So it's a mistake to think, I just need Jesus. Actually, we're designed to need each other. But a a similar mistake that can sometimes happen in our culture right now is we think, yes, we are designed for intimate relationships and what that means is you need to be in a romantic relationship. This is what I call salvation by romance. So in the culture, it just means you get consent. In the church, it means you get married. But there's this strange tendency we have to say, uh, well, if you are a faithful Christian, then God's reward to you will be a spouse with whom you will have perfect sex forever or something like this. I just want to remind us, that's not in the Bible. Marriage is very good, and it is a picture of the gospel, but it is not a promise, nor is it even preferred. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is the varsity team, marriage is JV. Like, our our churches actually need both marrieds and singles. And sometimes even we read the Adam story and, you know, Eve was brought to him. Well, it was the first marriage because they needed to fill the whole world with children. Um, But that's not the only thing we see. You'll notice even in verse 29 and 30, spouses don't even get mentioned. It's all the other family terms that get mentioned. Our parents, our siblings, our children, which, again, doesn't mean that marriage is bad, but that We need the intimacy of family, not just where we have a spouse and become like an ingrown toenail of a community. That's not good for married people or for anyone else. We need to be family altogether. Every single one of us needs intimate relationships like this. We need places to be encouraged and to encourage. We need places to be rebuked and to rebuke. We need people to laugh at our dumb jokes. We need people to cry with us, to care about the fact that our sports team didn't win again, or whatever, you know, we just need family life. We need people to help us go through that discipleship map you saw a video about. we're like, I don't know how to answer these questions. You help me answer them, because you know me. And that's why Jesus says, sometimes saying yes to me is really leaving behind relationships, but also I'm giving you a gift a hundred times more in this present age with persecutions. And that's a real family, we're, we're born again into God's kingdom, we're adopted. I love that both biology and legality are covered here, right, God is our father, Jesus is our big brother. We are called to be family, and that is especially important and good for every disciple who is going to be single because of Jesus and his gospel, which is inclusive of many disciples who experience same-sex attraction and are saying no to those attractions in order to say yes to Christ. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, I have a family, this can't be good news. I've experienced family, it's really hard. (laughs) And you're right, right? Family can be messy, it can be difficult. It can also be really good, and it's part of what we see here. Now, our text today doesn't talk about how um, to be a good family to each other, and that's deeply, deeply important. But it does promise that We are family to each other. We are siblings to each other in Christ. And so it's important, if we're gonna not make Jesus look like a liar in this text, to learn how to be family to each other. So I wanna offer us some some things that might help us think about how to be family well, just in general, but also particularly for um, same-sex attracted disciples. I've taken these from a friend of mine named Bill Henson who runs an excellent LGBT ministry called Posture Shift. You can actually use these principles too in thinking about evangelism towards your friends who are gay and lesbian or transgender, but we're actually gonna be thinking about them right now just in the context of family and in the church. So the first step is if we're gonna be family well with each other, we need to invite. Now all of us love to be invited, that's a great feeling, and it's awesome. And if we're practicing inviting then we will have that experience. But we also need to take the initiative to invite others into our sphere of family. Now we can't, we can't be family with every single person at a church this size, or even a church my size back in, in Boston, which is more like 300, right? You just can't. Jesus performed a miracle by being in his 30s and having 12 friends, but even then, Really, he was closest with the three, right? Like we, we have human limits, that's okay. But as we think about who am I gonna be doing family with as a disciple, we should be thinking about inviting to our homes, inviting into our lives, people who are different than we are. Younger or older, different marital status, different economic status. This is hard, frankly, it's, it's uncomfortable to do. But we're not gonna be able to provide Family in the way that Christ is talking about if we're not inviting. It's not gonna happen on its own. It's, it's just really not. But what do you do once you've invited someone in your space, right? You stare at each other? No, right? <laughs> the next thing we need to do is listen well to each other. We need people to hear our stories, to hear our tender things and, and to receive those in a, in a way that has the grace and truth of Christ over it. Every single one of us needs that. And I would say, particularly for disciples who experience same-sex attraction, we also really need people to listen to us well. Sometimes, those of us especially who grew up in the church have a lot of pain from our church backgrounds. We may have been deeply harmed by things that were said in pulpits or in youth groups or harmed by difficult reactions from parents or other friends. It'd be so helpful to just be able to explain what happened and to, and to have someone listen carefully and ask honoring questions and receive that. Not receive it to say like, you know, we're, none of us are perfect ex, uh, interpreters of our experience. And some parts of our life, again, need correction. But listening itself is just an act of saying, I see you and I love you and I wanna be family with you. Let's talk together. Let's, let's share grace and truth of Christ as we um, share our important things. We wanna invite. We wanna listen, and then we also want to protect. Like I said, part of the reason listening is so especially important for our same-sex attracted disciples is because there's often been a lot of pain and misunderstanding in being a same-sex attracted disciple in church contexts. A lot of assumptions and, and different things like this. So one of the things we can do in our spheres of influence in the church is think gosh, how can I make this a space where someone who is saying a costly no to gay relationships and saying yes to Jesus, this kind of space can be a place um, that is safe and healthy for, for those of us with this experience, right? So sometimes we can still have places in maybe Bible studies or certain contexts where there are still gay jokes happening that are... Not, frankly, that funny and certainly not helpful. Wouldn't help someone actually be able to talk about their experiences. They feel like, oh, this is an unsafe place. I'm going to get laughed at. Or sometimes there are places where there are still a lot of stereotypes floating around. Um, things that, or assuming that um, LGBT people are sort of only interested in political activism or certain types of um, you know, behaviors, and it's like, like, no, no, like, listen to me, understand me, like, I'm not, I'm not a stereotype. We hate when people stereotype us as Christians, right? We see these ugly stereotypes of Christians, and we're like, that's not me, and, and sometimes that's the experience of same-sex attracted people, too. There are these ugly stereotypes out there that, like, that doesn't describe me, especially, especially me. I'm, like, trying to follow Christ, like, please support me, And so you might need to get some education to do this well to figure out Well, I'm not even sure how to tell if my space is safe or not. And that's okay, we can learn together. We can make these spaces um, healthier. We can make them better. And then we also wanna invest. We need to invest in our disciples who experience same-sex attraction because so much of us often have had to hide or have been kind of on the margins because of difficult things. And the world thinks we're crazy to say no our attractions and say yes to Jesus. We talked about this passage as with persecutions. Sometimes there's brutal persecution for same-sex attracted disciples from the world. And then also difficulty sometimes from the church. But what if we invested in our disciples who experience same-sex attraction in a way such that we were thriving in Jesus, and where we were growing in maturity, and where we were able to serve the church in ways that allow it to flourish? That would be a witness to the watching world that saying no to attractions and yes to Jesus isn't a death sentence. It's actually invitation into a healthy, beautiful, boisterous, sometimes problematic family like all good families are, right? Now you might be hearing this and thinking, I know my friends who identify as LGBT, they would never respond to the gospel positively. Like they just wouldn't, they don't want it. I just wanna remind you, the, the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Uh, it is beautiful. I'm not the only person I've met who was in gay relationships and heard the gospel and was like the man who found the treasure hidden in the field and in his joy sold everything to buy that field, right? But you might be thinking of your friends and thinking it's impossible and they'll never want the gospel. Or you might just be thinking of the church cultures you know or church spaces, you know, and thinking, could this ever be a healthy family where we actually live out what Christ calls us to? Um, I don't know, I'm not even sure we could get to invite, let alone the other steps on the list, right? You might be thinking, no, this stuff is impossible. It's it's impossible, but I, I wanna close us with what Jesus says in verse 27 of Mark 10. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to redeem us, that no matter where we are, um, the gospel is powerful to save because you are powerful to save and you love us. If we are hidden in Christ, your face towards us is not anger, but it is warm affection. You're not waiting for some future time where we get our act together to love us. You love us right now. So I pray that in this love, we would feel confident, um, confident to listen to each other, to invite, to share the gospel, even with people who we think would never, ever respond to it because you are a God of miracles and surprises. We love you. I pray that you would bless Christ's community with your spirit and your power to see beautiful things happen here. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.